Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. He has trained thousands of students worldwide in peace-building strategies for complex conflicts. His most recent research has focused on psychosocial and neuroscience aspects of peace-building, resulting in his most recent work we're going to discuss today, Compassionate Reasoning, Changing the Mind to Change the World, published this year by Oxford, which argues for a new compassion-based approach to rational peace-building with implications for mental and physical health and public health. And friends, I could go on and on about um, Rabbi Dr. Mark Gopin's Menschlichkeit and his passion and his accomplishments, but let me just share his um, opening paragraph and his acknowledgments, just to give you a sense of what this work, Compassionate Reasoning, is about. He writes, this book, more than any of my other books, centers on the creation of a new idea and a new approach to thinking, feeling, and doing that might help transform human relations for the better. I've encapsulated that in the phrase compassionate reasoning, which is founded upon an exploration of and devotion to compassion as one of the most amazing and important emotions and ethical principles that brings healing and hope to human relations. The reasoning part rests on the importance for human reasoning and moral reasoning in particular, as it is expressed and described over the centuries and at least five different approaches to virtue and moral decision-making. This is incredibly important at a time where there is so much division and conflict in the world for us to think proactively of how we can participate in the scholarship and in the activism involved in this work. We're gonna hear from him for uh, a, a little bit about the book, uh, maybe 30, 40 minutes or, or give or take, and then we'll have the chance to engage in, uh, in a back and forth here. Rabbi Dr. Mark Open, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, so much, Rabbi Shmuley. And, and it'll be a little bit less than that because, I, because uh, I've enjoyed so much our conversations over the years and I wanna give you a chance to, to get in there with your thoughts and questions and then open it up to the audience. So first it'll be over to you. So let me just, um, it's, it's a pleasure to, to meet all of you and to talk. Um, I just wanna, I'm very excited about the, the, the book just came out, uh, just, uh, I just got it a week ago from uh, Oxford. It's uh, Compassionate Reasoning, as you saw. And um, it, it basically is the, is the fruit of, uh, of a life of labor on some fundamental questions facing humanity at this time of history that I've actually been bothered by, um, you know, since I was 15 years old uh, or even 10. And uh, the fact is that um, I learned from my teacher, Rabbi Soloveitchik, that the best questions are the ones that there aren't any clear answers to and that you mull over for decades. Uh, and that, that, kind of, that actually clued me in and watching his mind from the age of five, um, especially from the age of five to the age of uh, 28 um, in person, very close, I watched the amazing possibilities of reasoning that is combined with a care for humanity that is combined with a concern for history and for the human being as such, which was so fundamental to many of his philosophical writings, but also his Jewish legal and halachic writings as well. And I, um, I took a different attack when I spent my life not only on uh, 
PhD in philosophy and a rabbinical degree and all of the lifetime of study, uh, when I became uh, very strongly immersed in very desperate situations in conflict zones. And that had a very big impact on me, um, even though I had already found empathy with people in distress was fundamentally challenging to me as a person. And for one reason or another, I decided to, uh, to even further indulge myself in that empathy by going into war zones uh, for the last 30 years and, and empathizing with people on both sides of conflicts to really immerse myself in their narratives, in their stories, in their pain, uh, from Afghanistan to Syria for 18 years and Israel, of course, for 30 years, but really having that empathic of going back and forth across enemy lines all the time and listening to narratives and feeling people's um, and being in solidarity with people. A lot of that was captured in my first books in terms of hermeneutic reasoning, of the processes of how religious theory, religious traditions can hermeneutically engage in difficult situations with their ethics intact and interpret and reinterpret their traditions. And that was in Eden and Armageddon and Holy War. But I realized really from a very young age and also based on influence from major philosophers and psychologists in Boston, uh, from Rabbi Soloveitchik to Rollo May and, and Eric Erickson, that there was some, something fundamentally challenge, challenging us in the modern world with the question of, of where is humanity going and is there something fundamentally right or wrong with us? And I, I was very struck, uh, people from the 1890s, Freud and others um, were asking this fundamental question of, is there something fundamentally wrong with the human being? And he engaged with others like Einstein who had a fundamentally more optimistic approach. And then I remember, you know, really countervailing approaches to the, to the shock of World War I and then of, the, of World War II and the Holocaust. And uh, remembering that, that Viktor Frankl was also Jewish and, also, and, and in Auschwitz and comes out with a very different understanding of human nature, both in its dark side and also in its potential. So in many ways, we've been struggling for uh, at least 120 years with a very conscious question of what is it with human nature? And where is it, what is fundamentally problematic and what is fundamentally possible to be redemptive? And so as I looked for this, I, I also realized that as we empathically engage the suffering and the horror of wars, we also start to in some ways stunt our potential. And, and this is because the focus on war and on the dark side of the human being is fundamentally depressing to our ability to analyze things. And this was a great insight over the decades of, of Martin Seligman, who was one of the great pioneers of positive psychology, but who was a leading expert for decades in depression, in the nature of depression. And he came to the conclusion that the focus on depression, the analysis of depression itself was inherently depressing to the brain. And so that fundamentally the brain is very malleable and it moves in one direction based on thinking the way every thought you think, this is cognitive therapy's basic premise, every action that you do and every word that you say. 
So thinking, doing, and speaking were the fundamental categories that are all controlled by the brain. But every time we use a word, every time we think a thought, it is a biochemical reaction. It is a neuro, it is a neuroplastic moment and neuroplasticity, meaning the ability of the brain to actually alter itself by repeated thoughts, repeated actions, or repeated feelings. And that ends up going in either one of two directions. It can go towards the, 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 um, the pro-social or the anti-social. And we all know, and, and they were very, very aware of this from World War I on, let alone the Holocaust, of the overwhelming and frightening realities of how suggestible we are as human beings. And this moves forward to other extraordinary psychologist thinkers like Zimbardo and Stanley Milgram, who demonstrated at least the dark side of how bad this can be in mob behavior and how quickly this is not about something deeply wrong with this culture or that culture. This is very, very quickly demonstrable beyond a shadow of a doubt in many, many repeated experiments that you can immediately shift people towards passivity or aggression based on the modeling in the room. And that the first person to do something is always a little bit different, but the second person, third person is quickly a follower. And so that that tendency to obedience is something that makes us be able to, you know, uh, just be inspired to go out there and change our lives and, and, and go to all sorts of places in the world because John Kennedy said that it was time for the Peace Corps or Sergeant Shriver. And then others can just go and inspired millions in a generation because somebody else says it's time to kill the French or to kill the Jews. And that also can lead to enthusiastic mob behavior. So this, this duality is something that was very depressing to major psychologists, but others uh, decided to look at it in a very different way. And uh, Viktor Frankl, very early on when I was a child, reading him, trying to cope with the Holocaust, studying what he was saying, I, 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 was, I didn't understand the mechanics of what Frankel was suggesting about human potential and what happened to him in the camps and how the purposiveness of each moment of, 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 uh, of, of saving a morsel of bread for a fellow human being or having some imaginative purpose in the future of what I would be doing with my life, that that could save my life. It could save my psychology. It could also save me from becoming a barbarian myself, even with absolutely nothing left in my life, but the choice to have purpose and moral purpose. So Frankel was a genius at this, but what's changed in me and why I decided to write the book was as I struggled with the literature of, of psychology today, the, the, and, and I was very encouraged by the directions of positive psychology, I still felt there was no clear proof until I came, uh, until I came across the neuroscience literature on compassion and empathy. And part of this was because I was already struggling with the fact that something was wrong with progressive approaches to change. I mean, liberal progressive approaches. 
And, and that was that I had gone out there to war zones and everyone around me was burning out right and left. Some people would burn out in six months. Some people would burn out in, in five years. Um, and then some people repeated, got burnt out a few times and then left. And I, and, I, and I was surviving and it was 15 years in, then it was 20 years in. And I, was, I, I knew how, how many times I had gone through uh, an internalized trauma and I, I didn't understand it because I didn't, I wasn't tortured. So why was I becoming traumatized by, by people telling me how many times they were tortured? Why was I getting traumatized by not being allowed to say a word in a Syrian house? every trip that I made there, having to watch every word. Why did I come back to the United States and found myself developing a stutter? That I literally started not being able to speak normally because I was so traumatized by the idea that any word I say could get somebody thrown into jail and torture if I say the wrong thing in a Syrian house. This was before the revolution, before the catastrophic civil war, when it was a, a solid, safe, terrible police state. I was very safe, they were not. So I was very safe, and, but I had to watch every word. Where was the trauma coming from? And I realized that there's something wrong with the progressive model of throwing yourself deeply into the misery of others with no training, with no ability to cope with the trauma and the stress and expecting this is gonna be a good outcome for me and for everyone else. I saw many, many people misbehaving and, and doing things against their own interest and against everybody's interest because they were so traumatized by what they were struggling with. And that's when a, a, a light bulb went off when I, come, when I came across the literature that contrasts in the brain. These are, these are experiments that are beyond a shadow of a doubt now. I'll just show you, um, I'll just share with you for a moment. This is just a short picture. This is from uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Olga Klomecki, who is a brilliant young neuroscientist. Um, and if you look at it, you'll see here is, this is the fundamental distinction to make. Now in Hebrew, for those who are familiar, we have a word called chesed and we have a word called rachamim. We see them as interchangeable, um, uh, interchangeable synonyms. Okay, gmilut chasodim is the bestowal of, of kindnesses, and, the, and, and the, 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 the Talmud gives examples of that, uh, especially uh, kindness that can't be paid back, uh, but it's very much an overflowing into action. Now, what an amazing discovery that this has two different pathways in the brain. Compassion, the way we've defi I defined it just now, which is exactly the way that the Talmud defines it, is it increases positive emotions and it increases helping behavior, okay? And that's in a different part of the brain, literally. They can, they've proved it through experiments, through acts of compassion, thoughts of compassion, and where it goes. But empathic distress is a different part of the brain. And what happens is, is the more you strengthen the neural pathways of these areas, the more negative emotions you feel, the more your cortisol goes up, the more your blood pressure goes up, the more exhausted you are, and the more that you start to withdraw from people. In other words, empathy is an antisocial emotion. And chesed, compassion, is a pro-social emotion. 
even though both of them, in, 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 to, to, to use the Jewish language, are mitzvot. They, they may be a mitzvah, it may be a positive thing in both secular life and Jewish life and moral life in general to have empathy. That doesn't mean that it's sustainable or that it's in the long run healthy. And when I saw these experiments then realized that people who are practicing uh, meditation on compassion, actions and habits of compassion were becoming happier and more sustainable and more social and that others with empathic distress, and distress were coming worse and worse, I started to see the distinction between, um, and you can see some of the footnotes there uh, at the bottom, I started to see the distinction um, that is crucial for, uh, for the future. And that is that there are millions of people on this planet who are committed to positive social change. There are millions of people in every culture, in every religion, who if we had a conversation with them about why they're helping with people who are blind or people who are hungry or people who are in emotional trouble, you'd find extreme solidarity with them in those efforts to help. And yet at the same time, a lot, a lot of those people burn out with excessive empathy for the people that they're helping. There are two very different kinds of doctors running around hospitals, two very different kinds of nurses. Some are just so excited every, bit, every day because the focus of their thinking is, oh my gosh, I, I saved somebody's life yesterday, I can't wait to do it again, which is a meditational moment. It's a prayerful moment if you look at it from a religious point of view. And then the other person says, I cannot take another person talking to me about how uh, they can't cope with leaving their children and leaving everyone they love because they're dying today. I can't, I just can't, I can't hear it again. I just can't hear it again. And then they start taking, maybe they take some drugs. Maybe they, maybe they, 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 they buy another fancy car to try and cover up the grief. But basically it's, 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 it's Band-Aids on horrible experience of empathic distress. And then I looked at the, at the state of our world in terms of the need for social change and the, and the millions of people who are involved in social movements. And then I looked at the politics of this and I see millions of dollars of campaigns in every NGO and in every political campaign that's on the more progressive side that tends to focus on making people as miserable and fearful as possible, that the world is coming to an end unless you give another $20, uh, that, 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 that climate is gonna kill us unless you give to our, our NGO. And I ask myself, are we really thinking through the thinking, the feeling, and the actions that create a positive, healthy agent of social change. And then I said to myself, we have to rethink policy. We have to rethink NGOs. We have to rethink our religious interpretations and teachings. Because it's not that empathy or rachamim is bad. It's that in excess, it ends up doing the opposite of what you intended. And, and, and people turn off from it. 
So effectively, this book on compassionate reasoning is a combination of a very uh, extensive analysis of five different schools of ethical theory, utilitarianism and moral sense theory and neo-Kantian ontology and virtue ethics, and I think one more. And it rethinks it in terms of how those theories working together can lead to practices that maximize positive, joyful, loving compassion that translates that sentiment into rational actions of helping people around me, either in my hospital or in my country or on the planet or uh, all sentient beings in terms of animals, which, are, which is crucial for the future. All of this extension of compassion requires reasoning, but without the compassion, Reasoning can create atomic bombs, it can create gas chambers. The human mind with reasoning alone is monstrous, but the human mind guided by compassion is, is, is practically angelic. It's ingenious, it's astonishing. It feels godlike sometimes when you, when you look at what can be accomplished by a compassionate mind that is using reasoning to make positive change, to make revolutionary change for discoveries and, and, and other things that we've seen. So this compassionate reasoning is just really a thumbnail to how to combine the most healthy and happy sentiments we have together with our best ability to reason through them. And in subsequent books, I'll focus more on, on the halachic and Jewish expression of that. But, um, but in this book, I wanted to establish it as a, as a kind of um, a universal, universally applicable to be both people who are spiritually centered and people who are more secular, um, more secular in orientation, because both of, our, both of them or all of us need to, to, to find a way to shift ourselves um, away from, uh, away from, um, away from the empathic distress and the weight of feeling that the world may end as we know it, that the climate may end as we know it and that it's beyond our control. These are very, very intimidating thoughts we live with today. Not to mention that we do it behind a mask right now from, from COVID and all the losses we suffered. This is just a, a, a description of the chapters. Uh, some of them focused on um, on, on neuroscience, some of them focused on ethics, um, some of them focused on public policy and violent ideas as a disease that compassionate reasoning could be curing. I'm very interested in the public health analogy, the biology of social change, rather than the physics and engineering of social change, because biology is the key to understanding just how fluid we are and how, how much we easily can change in one direction or another. We are, not, we are not building the Empire State building, we're building the ideal healthy human being and the healthy community. And that's a much more fuzzy area that chemistry and biochemistry and neuroscience is more adept at, at, at treating. So I'm very much interested in the medical and public health analogy to what we do. Um, that's, a, that's pretty much a summary and I, I wanted to uh, then open it up to thoughts and questions and, and, uh, and things because uh, Rabbi Shmuley is, is on top of 
every important trend. And um, I, I want to hear uh, what he wants to ask and, and what he wants, what, are, what your thoughts are. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm very inspired by this book and by your work in general. So thank you so much for opening this up to us. So yeah, friends, I'm going to take a little, uh, a, a few questions based upon some of his writing and work here, and then we'll open it up to others here. To start, you know, famously in the world of philosophy, as you know, there's a, you know, a great debate between the Kant, the Kant and Hume around um, what, what fundamentally drives moral decision-making with um, what makes us tick. And is it reason or emotion? And clearly prescriptively, you take a stand here and saying it's both, we need both. Um, but I wonder descriptively, what, 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 has your, what conclusions has your research led you to on a descriptive level in regards to what is most fundamental to what guides human behavior in regards to the emotional and cognitive realms? Right, so that's good because that's another part of the book that I didn't emphasize in, enough. And that is the recommendation for the cultivation of habits and the way in which for thousands of years, all the great spiritual traditions have delved into habit as the key to the redemption of human being and society. Basically on an experiential level, um, Shmuley, this boils down to being in a, you know, whatever situation you can find yourself in where you feel extremely nervous and conflicted and pressed. So for me, I'm always thinking of myself in Damascus Sometimes these days in terms of elder care, I feel that way. And then what is, what's the experience that's going on in your mind? And then where do you try with a little bit of a habit to nudge it? And then where does that nudging lead in terms of rational behavior or more productive behavior? So I go from the beginning, which is always empathy without, a, without even any choice. Now, I admit we, first of all, there's a lot of sociopaths running around in the world, not too many, but sociopathy is, an, is, a, is a reality where somebody has no empathy uh, or they use empathy, they, they have an empathic understanding that they use actually to destroy another person. So a lot of sociopaths, um, it's not precise that they have no empathy, it's that their empathy channels into aggressive behavior. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about a large swath of humanity that have empathy and maybe even too much empathy and don't know what to do because the people around them are in so much pain, people they love, people they feel bad for. So there's that first moment. And then there's the experiential, what I tried to, Klemecki focuses on meditation, on compassion. I have come to realize that whatever passes through your mind when you're trying to straighten out chaos is a kind of meditation. And so for me, I'll never forget being in, in Syria under the gun and, 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 and saying to myself, in other words, I'm sitting there, I don't know what to do. And this, this thing from Perkeovos, this thing from Chapters of the Fathers comes into my head and it says, who is honored? He who honors all human beings. Who is honored? He who honors all human beings. What was, what was I doing? I was doing a meditation unconsciously to try and figure out how do I deal with some very bad people here and try to do some good. And I just fell with the instincts of the rabbis that there's no harm in honor. On the contrary, honor can make you, uh, so that, that was a compassionate relationship 
to some very sketchy people <laughs> that I had to deal with. And it led me to a series of pro-social actions that really, really helped. I mean, I was on television saying some of this stuff and all of it because I forced myself into that, that way of thinking, but that was a habit formation and then it became actions, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm struggling with how we can train millions of people to, to, when they're in bad situations, to move in that direction. And that's where I, the book has a lot of recommendations for training. You know, one of the things I love that you're doing here is not only for the benefit of all of the collective projects we're embarking upon, but your care for the individual, the individual healer and peace builder, and um, their sustainability, their burnout, their survival in all of this. And you've taken a word that is deemed almost entirely good, empathy, and shown the pitfalls of empathy when not checked and when not um, uh, balanced. And so one of the questions I have for you, um, for those who are immersed in this work, uh, as so many on this call are, um, how do we maintain a sense of urgency without falling into the trap, as you said, of, of creating a culture of depression? And you know, something I think I saw over the last number of years in the activist space is that the, the people deemed most committed are the ones who paint the darkest picture. Oh, it's not only that democracy's at, uh, democracy's at threat, everything's at threat. Everything is burning down. Everything's going to be destroyed. And the more clear you make it that everything is broken, the more committed you are. So how do we express urgency without um, always painting the most dark picture? Yeah, part of it is that we have to reframe what change really is. And this is a struggle also. I think there's also an inheritance from a... Um, I, the Marxist heritage is a very complicated one, but basically the idea that, that every bourgeois value is actually a trick to keep a system going, that the system is destructive and therefore the whole system has to be destroyed. That kind of thinking, um, again, it led to some very good socialist projects. You know, the socialism had a massive effect on on creating a safety net in many, many countries, including this one. At the same time, some of this thinking that effectively all positive thinking and positive values is a threat because it's actually a cover for the status quo, we have to challenge it. We have to challenge that no, you can be committed to change and also celebrate certain things. You can, you can celebrate um, the the ink, what I call in another book, the increments of positive change. So I think this involves training of rabbis and teachers and social change makers in the joy of each individual accomplishment. The, and, and we're primed for it because we have this thing called ritual and ritual is precisely the celebration of the joy of the moment, Even, no matter what is around it. And that we've done very well in religion. We've done very well in terms of celebrating Hanukkah, no matter what is going on outside, but we haven't celebrated, um, celebrated compassion, no matter what is going on outside. We haven't celebrated moments of justice, moments of, of, of increase in equality and celebrated them even ritually without it suddenly being accused that, oh, you're covering up the fact that the status quo is terrible. This, this is very often we're working with groups that are very damaged. 
we ourselves as you know the jewish community is also damaged from the holocaust but we work with a lot of people who are very damaged just because they need to be enraged and say everything is terrible doesn't mean that in a therapeutic way we need to do that we can be empathic we can sympathize but at the same time we have to come back to the compassionate reasoning and we have to do it at a deep internal level and and that will will create more sustainability but yes um especially with media you're going to have a lot a lot of pushback because media makes its its profits by misery, by empathic distress, by making people afraid, both right-wing and left-wing media. But this isn't new. This is this is how wars began for, you know, since the beginning of time. And and we simply um we uh but but I think you're asking an open-ended question because I don't have all the answers. I'd like to study this with people in media. I'd like to study this with others who can think about how to have those difficult conversations with fellow activists that don't turn into recrimination unless you are extremely negative. Awesome. Um, two more questions for me, and then we'll open it up. Um, you know, it is it, once once you have committed your life to social change work in one form or another, it is easy to find yourself feeling guilty uh, when you are reading or you're learning. I should be acting. Why am I hiding in the intellectual space? And this is part of what you're. You're, you're looking to dismantle, um, I think, and uh, to, co to cultivate a healthier, more sustainable process. And I wonder on a practical level, what you would advise um, as, as a means to integrate in the learning space, how do we arouse the compassion in learning? And in, and in, the, in the field work, in the emotional spaces, how do we, how do we practically kind of reawaken that 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 mode of reasoning when it's so easy to fall into one way of being and and sort of alongside that it is um i think one of the reasons it's hard to keep the emotion of compassion alive is because it's easy to convince ourselves that our ideology is compassionate and so i can remain in the reasoning space because my my form of reasoning is in the is in the, is in the compassionate side of things i'm not on the evil side and that actual empathy on the other side is not actually awakened so how do we ensure that ideology doesn't even uh, replace the, 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 the emotional aliveness? Yeah, well, it, it, ideology is a very insidious thing. It, it becomes, and this is where Jonathan Haidt's work is not wrong about self-righteousness. Um, ideology can become an excuse for not self-examination. In all of the writings that I've, that I've written from everything I learned from the rabbis, but also from uh, the Delphic Oracle, is knowing yourself, examining yourself, continually asking questions of yourself is a key to keeping yourself honest. And so the open-ended question is, is the, I have, a, I have a section on the open-ended question because the open-ended question is the key to a good therapeutic process, but it's also the key to, to moral and social growth of the society. And the reason it is, is because the, the, the part of the brain well, let me put it this way, and I talk about this in the book a lot. When you, when you ask, when you're sitting with two enemy groups, and I've seen this disastrous model of so-called peacemaking, when you ask them, it's like, oh, tell me what you think about 1948, you know, and you're sitting there with both people. And it's like, oh, my God, the tales, the rage, the, you know, everybody has good details. And you go to Belfast, and it's the same thing. You ask people, you know, about what happened, you know. So when you talk about the past, 
the brain looks like it's very intelligent because there's all these facts and figures that especially men bring to the table and they say this and they say that, and you guys did this and this and that in that, that particular place. But the, the trouble is it's all attached to the brainstem, the amygdala. It's completely en enthralled and enslaved to rage, to rage and fear. And that rage and fear drives the cortex towards what looks like reasoning, but isn't reasonable at all. Now, when you ask an open-ended question though, it's like, okay, I heard everybody in the room, 1940, I hear what you're saying. What do you want to do? What, what do you want to do? What do you want? People say, I don't know. There's no answers. And in that moment, I'm fascinated by what happens to the brain. And this is in many conflicts I've been in. In that moment, people get stumped because you've suddenly asked them to not go from fear and rage, but from imagination. And the power of imagination, just like in all the medieval interpretations of prophecy, imagination is 1 50th of prophecy. It is the most um, redemptive aspect of the brain is the ability to imagine the future and the ability to talk about it in an open-ended way. So in my experience, the more you ask people and delve into their narratives and ask them, what can we do together? And how do we include this one? Or what do we do about that one? And ask people and ask and ask, the brain becomes less destructive and less self, less, less focused on empathic distress and more focused on reasoning and a compassionate inclusion of others. I would argue that if you take all the ethical theories together, they're basically trying to set up a brain that thinks in terms of social contract, that thinks in terms of a, 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 a sentimental understanding of everyone and an effort to create laws and shared laws based on those sentiments. It's kind of a combination of Kant and Hume and, uh, and, and uh, John Locke and others. But it takes a guide. We ourselves have to become part of that process of always guiding the discussions towards, you know, what do we want together? What can we build? And, that, and then I think it brings out a, a different kind of result. It'll always come back in many people's minds and many people can never leave the past. But there are many others that if you give them permission, if you create the atmosphere, they start to build something else as an alternative. What are, what are some cases where you saw, we, we have seen compassionate reasoning really work as a transformative force? You know, when we point to heroes that we've all kind of been raised on, there's the, there's the reasoners, there's the great Talmudists, the brilliant scientists, and then there's the wounded warriors, the all compassionate, you know, giving up everything to be in the streets as healers. What are the models or the individuals that you think kind of represent this integrated model? Well, I haven't thought about that question about who are the models. I think there are millions of them. I think there are the people who become, who, uh, who look at a, at a completely disastrous situation where, where people are just killing each other and they go after helping the children and they focus on the next generation. In many cultures, people start, that is a very um, powerful, compassionate, and actually rational approach to long-term survival, for example. So people who work with children and the future tend to have that kind of long-term, um, they have a lot more self-control they're not as power hungry. They're not as focused on changing the politics. They're more interested in changing the next generation. 
there's a lot of there's a lot of heroes out there. So I, I don't want to really on the very famous level, I think a lot about the Dalai Lama, but a lot of people don't like that model because he never saved his people from the, the Chinese. Well, I defy anybody to save themselves from China at this point. What he did do is save them from a suicidal revolution that would have, would have uh, killed millions of them. I mean, the Syrian revolution ended up with 14 million people over half the country out of their homes, you know, and, and, and uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands dead and tortured. And, and the Dalai Lama has a different approach to the long-term survival of Tibetan culture. And he's a person who focuses every day on meditations and habits of compassion, compassionate thoughts, re rational thinking, science, and he does it from a deeply spiritual place. So he's always been a heroic figure for me. And he didn't make some of the fatal errors that I think Gandhi and some others did. Yeah. So anyways, we can, Beautiful. that's controversial, but we can, yeah, totally. we can, we yeah. can talk about that with Rabbi others. Jaffe, do you want to ask your question? Uh, I can read a few. Sure, yeah, better. No, no, let me, it's, uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Mark, so good to see you. I just really Very love to see you. listening to you. Um, so uh, I, I'm working on a curriculum right now. Uh, it's called Dismantling Racism from the Inside Out. And we're taking Musser principles, which are very, a lot of things you've described here around habit formation and, 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 uh, and trying to apply it around thinking about hierarchies of care and we're in a system like the United States where people of African heritage tend to be at the you know, uh, bottom of the priorities of who gets cared for in, in, in a big picture and trying to turn that on its head and rewire ourselves in a way through habits. So one of the, one of the sessions is about Rachamim and I was very taken what you were saying about it. And it's about, about compassion and building on James, something James Baldwin wrote about an, an empathy gap he wrote in the early 60s, that there was an empathy gap of white America towards black America. It was just not an ability to feel with. And so some of the work we do with that is trying to create a sense of empathy. Um, what would be, a, I, I, and, and listening to you, I want to be very careful in what we do, because I don't want to, you know, produce empathic distress uh, for all the reasons you said. Um, what would be a way of addressing something like Baldwin calls an empathy gap, which is, I think, a real thing, uh, in your model, you're talking about, you know, what would be an approach to that? In fact, I, I have Baldwin in the in the book. He's a, he was a genius of this, and um, everybody should watch Baldwin's debate in England with uh, with uh, the famous debate between Baldwin and uh, the uh, the the arch conservative fellow in the United States. Was it Buckley? Uh, with Buckley? Yeah, with right? Buckley. Yeah. And and you know what an empathic moment. He was trying to model what it is for him to empathically truly understand um, the, the, the reactionary white American and their attitude to black folk. And, and he does it in the speech there, it's just ingenious. So he had an incredible ability and he was trying to say that we need it from both sides. He was modeling it from the black perspective and his experience, but he wanted to see it and evoke it. I have no problem with that. It's, it's wonderful to provoke empathy. It's the, it's, it's the problem of how you do it and whether you turn off the very people that you're trying to embrace, to bring in. Mm -hmm. So that, for example, um, and this is why Gamilas Kasadim and compassion is a superior model to Rachamim, because Rachamim may bring some people to the table, but a lot of people 
just do not want to cope with the fact that they're barely struggling as white Americans. They have their own history of oppression as Catholics or as uh, Hispanics or as whatever it is. And they say, you know, how dare people say that I'm to blame for slavery and they're out of the room. So you've lost already. But a Gamilas Chassadim approach is different because you can have an anti-racism curriculum that focuses on on heroic figures, both black and white, who stood up for equality for all, mm -hmm. for compassion for all. You know, amazing, and there's so many. Mm -hmm. And then, then what you're doing is you're being invitational mm -hmm. to both white and black to be in a new reality of what we could be together. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. doing it by invitation and by seduction, as it were, moral seduction into the kind of heroic figures there are on both sides. That doesn't mean you should never talk about how horrible slavery is. I'm not saying censorship. But what I am saying is that, in a, that a curriculum dedicated to just how horrible whites have been. Mm -hmm. So you'll have some in there. They won't feel very good. They may burn out from stress. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's the majority who won't even be in the room. And as far as I'm concerned, unless we capture uh, um, uh, uh, poor white Americans, um, people who aren't in the room, we're, we're not going to, uh, we, we need to cohere as a, as a community and become a different nation. Mm -hmm. And we need uh, a compassionate reasoning approach that mm -hmm. to bring all those others in the room. And I, you know, I'm, I've spent a lot of the last two years dealing with some pretty reactionary uh, white folk and police and others because precisely for this reason. And, uh, and even a former, a former Nazi leader in the country, a young Nazi leader, his name was Derek Black, and his story is well known now. Extraordinary young man. I did it because I wanted to deeply, deeply engage. And I had, I had a hope that I wanted to reach his father someday, but it, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, really to just use, use your empathy for compassion purposes and humanization of the others in order to bring everyone into the same uh, room eventually. Uh, that doesn't mean, and again, this isn't about self-defense. If it was World War II, I would be the first to, I'm not a pacifist. I would have lined up people to self-defense. It's coming, it's bad, but there are opportunities here with Camila's Chassadim, with compassion, with reworking curriculums to basically avoid the violence of groups that come to hate each other on an ideological level. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much. Myra, I see you've had your hand up. Thank you so much, and thank you, Rabbi Gopin. This has been the most inspiring talk. I mean, you're putting together so many things in such an incredible way, and I thank you for that. Um, I, there are a couple comments that I wanted to make. One is um, I had Professor Seligman um, when I was a sophomore at Cornell in 1969. Um, it's actually 68 that I took his course. And you know, he he um, started out with some terrible experiments having to do with dogs. I don't know if you know about those. That it was learned helplessness. He was very interested in the experience of, of concentration um, victims. And so my, I, I think about that a lot. And I think about um, this process. Um, Rabbi Shmuley's first question, how do you transform yourself into um, a compassionate person through reason? 
And it seems like you have to work on getting out of the victim mentality in order to get there. And, and I would be surprised if the majority of people are not walking around with some form of a victim mentality. Um, and, and just to move past that, and part of what meditation, I think, and, and reason is all about is to move into a more observational, objective way of viewing what's going on, not taking events entirely personally. Um, so so that's, that's one of my thoughts that I had in response to this. Um, and, and another thing I wanted to mention, a friend of mine um, who's Swedish, and, and there might be many attempts at this, but she lives in Sweden and she had a lot of associations with the Dalai Lama, who I think visited there. Um, she formed an organization called Dream of the Good. And I will put a link in the chat in a little while. Um, and that organization had to do with teaching meditation to children in school. So I thought you might just be interested in that and I'll throw it in there. W wonderful thoughts, uh, Myra. Thank you so much. Um, I, um, yeah, I mean, it, as far as the, uh, I mean, you just look at, look at the, the way in which the Dalai Lama spawns so much good. And that is an indication of the, the, the fruitfulness of his ideas and his way, his approach to the human brain. That's what I love is that it spawns more imagination and more, and more possibilities. So that's wonderful. Seligman is a much more complex figure. Just because I mentioned him doesn't mean I agree with his life path or, or with some of the choices that he's made. The learned helplessness that they, they, they proved, they, they tried to prove with so many different experiments, including Leon Festinger and others, learned helplessness is an important way to understand what happens in concentration camps and what happens in general with victim groups. Uh, it's it very, in fact, it, it, the empathic distress I'm describing also has to do with learned helplessness in the sense that when you're, when you're I, I have specialized in my career and I, and I kind of regret some of it, at lost causes. I spent an awful lot of time with things that really, there were such big global proxy wars going on between the United States and Russia. And, 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 I, and there's little me in there in Damascus trying to stop you know, a whirlwind. And, and it sets you up for learned helplessness. Every way you turn, something is, is broken. And I compare it to being a cancer researcher. But a cancer researcher has a lot more positive reinforcement than I got in Damascus because they have big grants and they have a system. They have they have systems of what is success in terms of a discovery of the next stage of, of cancer research, et cetera. They're part of a whole culture. And when, but you, when you're a peace builder and you're up against the lost cause, you don't have anything. It becomes a learned helplessness moment. So I learned a lot from Seligman's career, but that doesn't mean I agree with with the path, I am uh, I am far more committed to compassion as the key to human resilience, both for individuals and their effect on society. He's much more focused on self-realization, and he's also done a lot of work that I don't agree with with the military. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I don't think that ultimately it's compassionate reasoning to help people become the most efficient killers they can be and be happy about. It. I I. I I have a lot of respect for people in the military. I don't want to reduce military to just killing. I don't, I don't feel that way. But to make it more efficient with positive psychology, 
No, I, that, that's not the point. You, compassionate reasoning is thinking globally the way that, that, that the great philosophers and, and, and people like the Dalai Lama do. So I just want to put a cautionary note in there that I understand <laughs> your discomfort. And, and, and by the way, our move towards sentient life, Rabbi Shmuley is one of the great champions of vegetarianism in the Jewish community. I, I, it's been a very, very positive move towards a greater understanding and compassion in the widest sense. Animal rights always preceded human rights in history because it's a critical way to train the brain to get used to understanding the totally different other. And it was, it's easier really with animals because they're, we're not sitting there in a war. But, uh, but, but that didn't used to be the case. People used to thought of themselves as the state of war with the wild animals around them. And now we're moving towards this deep level of compassionate understanding of animals as well. We're starting to see just how much moral reasoning and emotional reasoning there is in a lot of animals. They're even detecting emotions in insects. It's amazing, the evolution of consciousness about animals. It's only helping. So yeah, I, I never would have done a single experiment on animals myself. I just didn't believe in it. Um, Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller. By the way, before we go to Rabbi Chaim, if you haven't yet bought um, Rabbi Dr. Mark Open's book, Compassionate Reasoning, please be sure to take the opportunity uh, during or after the session to, to do that. Okay, Rabbi Chaim. How, how, how do you get a discount? Right now, Amazon has jacked up the price. Uh, Oxford has the best price on it right now. But but do, but but please... Hey, critically review it. Please buy it and review it anywhere. I really appreciate any reviews, including critical reviews from any of you. Um, but there are no discounts yet, but there's already used copies being sold on Amazon. I don't know how. All right. Okay. So, so uh, one thing I wanted to say about the Dalai Lama uh, is, you know, is the amount of laughing that he did. I, I, I think that that's, that's, a, that's a, that's where I, 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 what, I, what I'm seeing here. I'm gonna, I'll ask you my question in a moment because another comment was um, when you talked about animal rights, and and you said you haven't done you haven't done the book on you know Jew, on Jewish law and so on. But it seems to me that right that that's the approach of Kashrut, the the psychology of Kashrut, that if you can learn how to uh, abide with a certain respect to animal life, hopefully hopefully you'll also respect human human life. Yeah, and, and and this type of type of training in terms of how you uh, expose yourself to 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 nature in general in general. Um, so, but I want what I wanted to ask you is, do, do you think that 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 there's a problem in people's predisposition that needs to be cracked? In other words, there are people who are disposed to a more catastrophic assessment of life. And, and 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 really are boxed in in, in that in that way of, of thinking um, and and others who have a more optimistic view of life um, or, or or tend in that direction um, that allows them uh, the you know to move in in the compassionate direction creatively so uh, how, 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 how do you I mean it's an it's an enormous undertaking it seems to me. Um, to, to develop a, a psychological approach that actually reorients people in terms of their their their, their natural mode of 
uh, of thinking. Is that some? Is that what you've attempted? I mean, I don't know. Uh, so that, that's the. That's where I'd like to explore more with everyone's help. All of the best lessons, and somebody referred to David Jat, Rabbi Jaffe referred to uh, the Musser literature, which, by the way, Chaim Grada and others thought was pretty negative, but there's a very positive approach to Musser also. But, but the point is that we can really mine our tradition for the best approaches. I've seen dream interpretation and habits of changing your dreams among in Hasidic literature and doing it over a period of 30 days, and the 30 days turns out to be a magical kind of number when it comes to changing your neural pathways. So, I mean, before neural pathways, people got a sense intuitively of what it is to change habits of thinking, habits of doing, and habits of feeling. We should look into that. We should look into that in the Jewish tradition, but in all the great um, wisdom traditions. And, and I think that's, that's one key. The other key is narrative and story. And that is that the one thing that has changed enemy systems and people thinking, oh, I'm not the only victim here, there's other victims, is story, the power of story, not dialogue, quote unquote, but story, listening to somebody's complete narrative. And the more we can do that, the peop this, this creates transformation as well. You don't really have to get in, rid of your own victim mentality. You can, you can be deeply aware, many, many wounded people out of the Holocaust come to be incredible humanitarians. Uh, how is that? What is there? Did they ever let go of what happened to them? Never. What, they didn't stop understanding their victimhood. They just evolved it into something that was incredibly redemptive, like Frankel. So I don't think that we have to try to shed people from their sense of victimhood. I think we need to figure out how the best models are for moving with whatever empathic pains we have and whatever guilt we have for the people who survive, those who didn't survive, to uh, something that is more compassionate and joyful. And joy and love are the key to really, really love what you're doing is something that change makers need to, need to do. And that in itself is like a healing balm to the victimhood that we feel inside from, from our own narratives and our own history. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So important. Thank you so much for this time, Rabbi Dr. Mark Open. Friends, I posted the book on, from Oxford University Press on the side. We hope you'll check it out and we hope to keep this conversation alive. So important for how we, how we do our Jewish learning, how we work to create change together. Uh, oh, Rabbi Steve Greenberg, I see you just uh, unmuted. Did you want to say something quickly? Just thank you. Just Mark, it was just wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank awesome. you, Steve. You've always been a model of compassionate reasoning for me. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Crystal Gopin, for setting this up for us today in partnership Thanks. with Pam, as always. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you so much. Okay. All the best. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.